0: It's being able to showcase what your real estate owned experience is and being able to have a, a case study available for all those, or just being able to speak to how you're going to do it and going in front of an investment committee and telling them why you think it's going to be $15,500 per year or why it's going to be $20,000 per
1: year. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Boat, and today I've acquired invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate investments. Today, our guest is Brendan Chisholm, and today we're digging into his strategy for investing in distressed multifamily properties. First off, we're going to define what is a distressed multifamily property. We're going to walk through three different properties that he and his business partners have acquired in the Sunbelt area in Virginia, Georgia and South Carolina. And then we're going to learn about how they've executed on this strategy from doing the due diligence to doing their renovations to managing the properties, managing their construction, and so many other things, managing the actual assets and operations to getting the debt. A lot of information in this one, especially for those out there who are interested in distressed multifamily investing. This is the one to listen to. I started my multifamily investing career years ago in distressed multifamily. We've since pivoted away from these distressed assets to more stabilized B-class assets. But there are folks out there like Brendan and his business partners finding opportunities in the distressed multifamily space. So today, our goal is to bring you some wisdom, some knowledge around success in distressed multifamily investing. If you're an Apple podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple podcast five stars. If you don't mind, you guys, I appreciate that. So, so much that helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling. Cause I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the wall street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what we do with our investors, just, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Once again, our guest today is Brendan Chisholm. We're learning about their strategy for investing in distressed multifamily assets without any further ado. Here we go. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to discussing and learning about your strategy for investing in heavy lift multifamily. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do and where you're investing?
0: So what I do, first off, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, what do I do and where do I invest? Right now, I own three, a GP on three properties, uh, one in the suburbs of Atlanta and the city called Noonan, Georgia, uh, second in the suburbs of Charlotte in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and a third in our most recent acquisition in Hampton, Virginia. Uh, we focus on value-add distressed multifamily deals in those you know, in the Southeast Mid-Atlantic area. And how did I get here? I think that was the last question. Sure, go for it. Sure. I do, similar to the theme of your show, I thought it was a great idea to continue to invest in stocks and coming out of their market and after our graduation in 2009 and just barrel most of my money in there and realize that a lot of the, a lot of the opportunity to make the money myself with just using my hands or being able to calculate spread sh- through spreadsheets is much easier through, is not much easier, but there's more, more control through b- purchasing real estate than there is trying to, you know, game the wall street casino. So yeah. and that was a big thing with me. And I just started reading a bunch of books. The, a lot of them that you see on the back of your wall, I Read every single it looks like every single one so far. So it's it's investing my own education, just figuring out how to, how I got here. Awesome, awesome. So I want to dig into the strategy of
1: investing in distressed multifamily today, and you know how you guys are su- succeeding in it. But before we talk about the strategy in particular, let's define some terms and and concepts. So let's talk about the size of multifamily properties and what you mean by distressed or, or heavy lift and, and define some of sure. these things. So let's
0: dig into so that. So uh, the, the three properties we own right now are between 45 and 70 units. So we're, we're in that sweet spot of too small for institutional, too big for mom and pop when it comes to some of these distressed heavy, heavy value ideals. The first purchase that we had, the first acquisition was in Noonan, Georgia. And the reason we labeled it as distressed was at the time of purchase, uh, there was nine... Total down units, and then an additional fourteen units that needed to be renovated. So you're looking at below eighty-five percent occupancy level at the time of purchase. Went into that deal, calculating anywhere between you know fifteen thousand dollars for the unrenovated units, upwards of twenty plus thousand dollars for the the uninhabitable units, and just getting those back online. The deal was purchased off market, so it was it was more not easier to find, but it was an opportunity to find something. That was distressed before it hit. Was you know, came on market. The value, the heavy value add deal that that we mentioned in our thesis it was an on market deal, secured through a broken sale process. You know, it, it was initially awarded to somebody else, and then through our references for closing our last deal, was sent towards us. It was similar type of thing. We're renovating upwards of twenty to thirty thousand dollars per unit interior, both for, the, and that's considering both interior as well as exterior units. Brand, you know, doing granite and in the kitchen, brand new cabinets, stainless steel appliances, and doing a whole new shift, you know, uh, from what the what seemed like a property's a 1960s vintage and moving into a 2020 vintage for both of those properties too. You know, we do painting, you know, milling asphalt, uh, bring in barbecues, dog parks, playgrounds if they're not already there, and really you know, reposition the asset from the current the current where it is currently. Over to, you know, as we were talking prior to show, you know, moving a class C property over to a B minus B asset. It usually invest, when we, when we look at these markets for following all the trends, you know, macro and micro trends, that's most of people in our position look at. Is there job growth? Is there population growth? Is there income growth there? And it, it helps supports. Being able to underwrite what we feel consider to be conservative, and still have an opportunity when tailwinds present themselves to be able to beat you know some of our underwriting versus what our model initially showed. Great, great. Okay, so there are a few things in there, and
1: you know, there's always keys like uh, I think we were b- before we were recording. You're talking about you know, adjusting your debt. You can adjust your debt. You can't adjust your cost basis and all those kinds of th- things. But you also can't adjust the condition of the property without spending some money on the property. And what I'm getting to here is the actual costs of renovations. How are you, before you buy these properties, how are you quantifying that, you know, it's going to be 20,000 to repair this unit or 30,000 for this one or 15,000 for this one. How are you doing that due diligence so that you know your numbers when you go into it?
0: We've refined that process. And from the first acquisition up to where we are with our third acquisition, we're, you know, you're getting a lot of us have done you know, flips before or have done interior work to units before. So we have at least an understanding of what the cost will be to get ca- like what the price for cabinets will are, what the price for granite is or laminate and you know, new floorings for all of that. So now that we have a, you know, now they have numbers that support it from, you know, here's a 750 square un- square foot unit. It costs us just for round numbers, $15,000. It's going to cost you $2 per square foot to do all of that work. So it's now applying that $2 a square foot to how big are the units that we're doing at our other property. And that's what we should probably use as a basis for it. Are we doing this with the list of everything that we have? Stainless steel accounts for of a $15,000 budget. Stainless steel appliances account for $3,000 just for round numbers. So it's 20% of that. So it's being able to calculate and understand on our back end, you know, through our spreadsheets and models, just being able to say, okay, we're going to do a similar type of renovation for every single unit. Here's the cost that we started at the first property. Here's the cost we started seen at the second property. And this is how we can underwrite deals for the future, being able to try to get more accurate based off of what the price per square foot would be and what the square foot per units are. Okay. Okay. So another aspect of you know distressed multifamily
1: investing that that I've run into is you can't adjust the neighborhood you can't move right. the property right so you need to have some reason to believe that this property that has certain number of vacant units and the ones that are not vacant are being rented at you know x dollars a month, that kind of a thing. You need to have a right. reason to believe that there's demand in the market to improve the property you know for all these uh raised rents that kind of a thing. How do you quantify that and dig into
0: whether if you fix the property up, you know, if you build it, will they come? Right. That's, that's a big thing. A lot of what we're looking at is deliverable. What is the number of construct like units to be delivered over the next couple of years and what, what the market vacancy is? So we, we run, run rent comp analysis for all of the surrounding properties. You know, what's our floor versus what, we're, what we think our floor will be? You know, what's our true comp? And can we reach our true comp or are we going to be $25 below it or $50 below it? And then we have what we're, what we're reaching for. You know, you have your ceiling uh, apartments as well. So it's where, where, where's the current market rent at the property and where, where could it be at if you're adding this, you know, 15 to 20,000 or $30,000 per rent. And do you think that's a large enough delta, uh, between what the current rent is and what you think you can get it to, to make sure you're justifying your ROI on the property okay okay that's it's really looking at we get our costar reports your your apartments.com reports and seeing if there's a big enough bite to be able to take out of you know this apartment to justify the amount of money that we're spending on each of the units two out of two two out of the three properties you know we haven't we've just started the third property you know for the value Investment—the two are the two—we've done pretty good so far of identifying that there is that large of a delta between where the current rents were and what we could have achieved for for that type of a, you know class of asset.
1: So we were talking before we started recording about the like neighborhood aspect of this and the the really micro you know block by block aspect. How have you found that that impacts your you know performance or ability to you know predict
0: the the upside in rents? So the second deal that we purchased, we'll reference this because this is what we were talking about prior. Right next to the property that we acquired in South Carolina, there was a there's a hundred plus units, or not not unit. There's a hundred single family homes being developed right next door. There, was, so you have that. I'm not saying that's like the the key to what what is doing it, but it's 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 showing that this this property that we're purchasing is in the path of progress uh, for what we're doing there the first deal, it was just the actual feel for the apartment complex itself is surrounded by a bunch of, you know, single family residential homes. So there's not many in, you know, the one mile proximity to the property, there's not a lot of other apartment communities there. So the first one is very you know, settled in, you know, quiet, great place to live and you know, call your own. While the second one is, you know, we saw that it this was in the path of progress when, when we went down to do our initial due diligence. And you know, Give the the move forward to do it, and it's it it really helped justify why we why we did the deal. You know, then we got our first unit rented, and we got it you know thirty three percent above what our underwriting was. So it really, it hit home that it's okay, yeah, I think I think we made the right choice of being able to go here and you know take on the risk that is involved with these types of large value add deals that we're doing. Nice, nice.
1: So. There's the uh, planning stage of things where we're analyzing our deals, and then there's the actual execution, finding our property managers and doing asset management, construction management. There are a few different ways to do that, but in your uh, case with these deals, how are you executing that? Are you How are you finding your property managers and managing them to make sure it's executed,
0: your construction manager, all that kind of thing? Walk us through the actual operations of sure. these deals. So, so the first two deals that we have are managed by the same property management company, as well as the... Same construction management team. So we, we have had familiarity with them and we understand how they work. They understand how we work. So it's, I wouldn't say it's symbiotic, but we, we do enough to make sure that the, the business plan is executed on the, the, the asset management side. It's, you know, it's running our model and tracking every single spreadsheets and timing along with your know, weekly management and construction management calls, uh, just to make sure that we're on target for you know where we are right now one of the deals is are we on target for delivering the units than when we said we're going to deliver them so it's you know when did the construction management team say they were going to deliver the first unit now we have a week by week thing that says okay you said it was going to be you know november 21st which is today but now it's november twenty eighth. what's what is causing the delta so we have you know we're, we're tracking that on a day you know a weekly basis we also have like a rent roll turnover because the deal in rock hills south carolina Every seventy units needs to be turned, so it's on like a unit by unit. We're tracking it unit by unit as to what's what's in our pipeline, what's what's currently vacant, what's coming vacant over the next sixty days. Do we have enough pipeline to fill our for our the subs on site? Do we have enough units to get ready? And then it's you know, coordinating with the operations team. If we don't, if is there opportunity to give notice to to tenants? One of the things that we were given when we were purchased the property was in the leases there was a sixty day. Uh, notification. If you even if they were on month to month, they were given sixty day notice to move out. Where it's usually your typical thirty days. So that was a big timing thing that we didn't initially unearth during due diligence, but found found that to be the case once we started to give notice. So put our schedule on uh, you know back by a month, but we were able to you know hopefully in due time catch up based off of the number of units that we brought vacant there. We're using we're using capex and construction trackers as well to make sure that. You know, as I mentioned, how we're underwriting these deals on a per square foot basis, we're doing the same thing, you know, once the bills come in as well. So you can, you can underwrite it as much as you like. But once, you know, we're getting invoices from all the contractors, it's, it's matching them up because when we purchased the proper in February 2022, inflation wasn't as high as it is today. So it's, although we have contingencies, have we gone through our contingency budget? But we also add, you know, a certain amount of, increases on expenses each year when we're underwriting these deals too. What else is there? So it's, it's it's daily tracking, weekly tracking. It's those weekly calls that we have with both an operations and construction team. And then you know, it's about back on us to make sure we're organizing our thoughts, mostly done through Word docs or just those weekly meetings and Holding everybody accountable at that time. Uh, once we have the meeting and sending meeting minutes to make sure everybody knows their go-forward uh, marching orders until we have the next call. And if the the answers aren't there, those are the, the first thing that we we kick our call off with. We need answers for all this so we can communicate it properly back to our investors. And you know we need to have these expectations in line with everything else because we're you know making these announcements to our investors and they're the ones going okay. You know I, I trust that you're on your business plan. You know, if you're not, you understand why you're not on your business plan and what you're doing to redirect it back to the ultimate goal of where we need to be. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: one of the things you touched
1: on there was providing notice to tenants for units that you're planning to fix up, you know, down the road, staging, all that kind of a thing. But also you're acquiring properties that have you know, down vacant units that need a lot of capex as it is. You know, if it's down, it's not generating any income. So... You may as well decide to start with those units and fix those up first, but right. how are you really making those decisions when you're buying a property if it's distressed? It's a little more likely to have non-paying tenants in addiction in addition to you know vacant units. So how are you working that decision tree to go with, you know, okay, we're gonna fix these down units first, and then we're gonna look at, you know, these units that are occupied that maybe have potential rent upside, that yeah. kind of a thing. How do you walk through that?
0: So for the, the deal in Noonan, we had those nine units that we were able to renovate immediately. So that, that made the decision much easier and it kept them busy for three months. There afterwards, we needed, we know we needed to keep a pipeline going. So it was what units are not, you know, when does your lease end and trying to coordinate that and trying to say, okay, if you're doing the nine units, we have an additional 14 that we need to do over our business plan over the next 12 months. Is there opportunity to bring them forward or can we just group them together? So it's part of it is giving that notice or for what I'll go on to for our next deal is it was giving that notice to, let me rewind that for a second. For the sure. second deal, we have the, we, there was 70 units on the Rock Hill deal. All of them, all 70 needed to be renovated. We were actually, we or, we were actually giving a uh, a move out special, which hardly anybody took because the market was so our move out special was we'll pay you a thousand bucks to move out immediately, type of thing. However, nobody took the notice because the the market was so tight down there it, over the you know, in the springtime, in the summertime, that it was just trying to court, like trying to group these together and trying to move them out faster than we we initially could have. But we over that time, you know, almost immediately, we we had to make sure that we had. All of our interior, interior bids solidified before we started going for the notice. So it's, you know, it's, I know I'm going jumping in and out of order, but it's figuring out that game plan initially. When, when do you offer the notice? But concurrently making sure that your bids, your, your, your scope of work that you want to do for the units are in time and you address any lead time issues that there may be before you give that, you know, the 30 day or the 60 day notice or group them together. We sat vacant on a few units in Rock Hill, knowing that we'd save money by doing a lot of, by grouping the units in together and doing, you know, 10 at a time versus you're doing a one-off or two-off just because of the size, the the amount of the, the scope of the work that we needed to do and the ability to save on some of our construction costs, which outweighed some of the, where the effective rent was for these, these currently rented units. Okay. That makes sense. So you kind of work to stage it so
1: that at least in this, in one case, you could do 10 of them all at once and get some level of economies of scale. But how long, say, and maybe you don't know the exact numbers, but you have the first one go vacant until you have the second one go vacant. How long is that? Are we talking a week? Are we talking two months? Are we talking three months? Like what's the, how much time did you really have to, you know, compress into simultaneous?
0: It's so it varies more so than anything else because there could be you know units that are we're at a point now in our in our rehab of this project down in rock Hill that's it's, it's either you know it, we're we're hoping for move outs to occur on you know say november twenty first and then we start work on the twenty second because we're grouping those together. Mm-hmm. We started a lot of the work we were we, our first units came online in July after purchasing the property in February so what we did at first to make sure that everything was going, we did all of the exterior work first to, to at least keep the con- contractors busy as the the interior units started to build up. But to your point, there's some stuff that has been down since ownership, but we've been using that as storage instead of, we've been using those actual units as storage units instead of purchasing additional trailers for, for the property, which again, you know, we ran the c- cost analysis and it was cheaper for us to keep the unit vacant than it was to actually do something, like a trailer for an entire month. But it you know, it varies. It could be a day if the the unit's ready, they can start work the next day. It could be a month before they're grouped together. But it's it we at least for afforded us the opportunity and the lead time to make all of the the interior decisions by doing all of the exterior work first.
1: Okay. Okay. So another big piece of this, and then we'll move on to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, but another big piece of buying any real estate is the financing, like getting debt. And one of the things that I found in my time uh, when I used to invest in more distressed assets was that it was kind of tough, even in in good debt environments, and we are not in a good debt environment today. What was your experience on these deals, like just getting the bank to take your call, right? Because if you have a bunch of vacant units, they're a little more reticent
0: to really uh, finance right. the property. Uh, we used a debt broker for, for this okay. that I had a relationship with prior. And we also had multiple people, we had multiple GPs on our deal and we had a, uh, our key principal has experience investing you know, since the mid 2000s. They made uh, you know, a lot of these bridge debt, uh, bridge lenders much more comfortable investing with us. We used the same lender on our second deal because they saw the work that we wanted to do and they gave you know, almost immediate credit approval because you know, they have our case study of how we did on, on the existing, the first deal that we did. So yeah, to your point, it's, it's being able to showcase what your, your real estate owned experience is and being able to have a, a case study available for all those or just being able to speak to how you're going to do it and going in front of an investment committee and commi- telling them why you think it's going to be $15,500 per unit or why it's going to be $20,000 per unit. So a, a debt broker was very critical for us being able to uh, the source the right type of debt that we wanted to use for for the first two properties. And the third property that we purchased, we were considering using a a bridge to bridge to perm type of debt that we've used on the first two deals. However, there was a local community bank that wanted to give us a fixed rate loan with <laughs> that was a two hundred basis point that had the interest rates two hundred basis points lower than what the the debt. Cost for us, so that that was a no-brainer for us. Even though, like you know, we this this prepayment penalties uh, that are associated with it, but it's just so much more meaningful for where we are in the interest rate environment to have you know a five and a half percent loan versus what it is for a 75 percent loan. And we uh, our investors' expectations is we'll refinance in eighteen to thirty six months for our deals, and this third deal will be closer to the thirty six months to avoid any of the prepayment penalties.
1: Okay, so 36 months to refi and with prepayment penalties involved is still not that bad. I mean, there are other loan products out there where the prepayment penalties can extend far longer than 3 years into ownership. So
0: that's not terrible. No, no it, it, it it's the we were able to use our extensions and since the deal was an off-market deal, some of our social capital uh with the seller <laughs> To be like, this is a, you know, this is quite meaningful to what we're trying to do for our business plan. And, you know, it's just, you just need to align expectations and communicate to your investors as to the decisions that you're making. So they have faith in what you're doing. Gotcha. Great. Well, I love the sound of that right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor.
1: The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and Get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Brendan, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education?
0: Best investment I've ever made was my first real estate syndication. Do you want me to run through numbers or just give you Just tell account? us about a
1: little bit about the deal. Which one was it? You know, yeah, I,
0: suppose, kind of I could. It's of Noonan Noonan bit of a little a fifty-three, now fifty-four unit distress deal. We bought it in February twenty twenty-one. Uh, 4-2 purchase price, just over a million dollars of CapEx. Uh, so our total cost basis was, we'll call it 5354. Five, By the time we were done renovating the uh, property and turning out all the loss of lease, uh, the valuation came in at 9.2 million dollars. So we, we did pretty well on that one. Uh, and in lump sum, we returned all of our money back to all of our investors at the time of refi. So now it's, it's just a big burr is what I like to call that one. Nice, nice. That's
1: awesome. Everybody loves the refi; get your money back out, but you still own the property and make some cash flow, grow some wealth over time. Great. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin: the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made?
0: I invested in GoPro like in 2015. <laughs> uh, I was still. This was before I started real, reading about real estate, and I bought it based off of. Uh, I, I was expecting the company to get bought out, which eventually happened just a lot longer, a lot later than I purchased it, you know, and it, by the time I sold it, I just, it was like a 20% loss on it. Luckily it wasn't that much, but I realized there's a lot, it was one of the reasons why I moved over to real estate, even though it was a small amount of money, there was everything out of my control after purchasing it that I couldn't control where it was actually going to go. So I had yeah. a hope on appreciation and that's not a game I want to play. <laughs> <laughs> hope is not a strategy. no. No, very important lesson. My
1: favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business
0: and investing? My grandfather taught me this when I was, you know, in middle school is you gotta work the numbers. But you also gotta have you also need to understand that a spreadsheet won't tell you the true numbers based off of where you purchased the property. So you can you can run the numbers as much as possible. So it's The two it's, it's part from my grandfather and part from a friend of mine that I invest with He says you can't be a spreadsheet junkie, uh, after running all the analysis, because sometimes the hood will just take your spreadsheet and just throw it out the window.
1: (laughs) That's true. And it's easy. It can be easy to kind of trick yourself into a deal by doing some fancy spreadsheet math. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the condition of the property or your business plan or anything like that. So the intangibles, uh, remain important. Well, Brennan, thank you so much for joining us today and teaching us about your distress multifamily investing strategy and experience. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down?
0: Best way to reach me is send me an email at brendan at bkcholding.com. You can reach me at both of my websites, bkcholding.com and brendanchisholm.com. Happy to uh, talk about real estate all day with anyone. Awesome. Thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show,
1: please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.